Okay, today is May the 17th, 2012. And I don't know of any announcements that we have. We thank the Lord for the rain we got the other day. So uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Rebound if necessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are immutable. You are our anchor. You change not. In a world where everything is going berserk, we have stability because of who and what You are, Your grace, Your Word, everything that You provided for us. So we pray that You will help us to focus on the lesson this evening, Your mighty Word, that it will have a profound effect on everything that we think, say, and do. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I was going through my library looking for a book the other day and I found a book I wasn't looking for that I <laughs> I had already read one time and I forgot how good it was. It's the, the name of it is Silence is not go uh, uh, Silence is not golden it's yellow by Tom Anderson. And I'm going to I have I actually have two copies I'm going to put one in the church library as soon as I get the uh, card, but, okay, I'll put another one in there. By the way, y'all do know we do have books to check out, don't you? We have some really good books, Marketing of Evil, and we have uh, Jesse V. Peterson's uh, book uh, on the uh, family missing from the black uh, community and so forth. Anyway, if you check out one of those books, be sure to bring it back within, I think we give you two weeks, something like that. If you can't read it, read it in two weeks, then you don't need to be checking it out. But if I ever find a book that goes missing, I'm going to start asking who's got it from the pulpit. So remember that when it's time for it to be back in the church. Anyway, I wanted to write, read something, just a quick uh, paragraph or two out of this book. Let's see, when was this? This was uh, this is an older book. It was uh, copyright is 1973, and a lot of this uh, was during the Vietnam War, and um, communism was still. Uh, a big issue. There was a there was a um, <coughs> poll taken, and it had to do with ministers. There were. According to Christianity Today, October 13th, this was in 1967, Western Reserve sociologist Jeffrey Hayden contacted 10,000 Protestant clergymen in the United States asking them what they believed. To this 10,000 inquiries, there were 7,441 replies. Tabulated results of this poll of 7,441 Protestant ministers 
is one of the most alarming surveys I have ever read. I want you to keep in mind, this was, what was it, 1967? What was that, 45 years ago? 45 years ago is when this poll was taken. The ministers were asked the question, do you believe in Jesus' physical resurrection from the grave in the same sense that you believe that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? In other words, do you believe that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact? 51% of the Methodist ministers in the United States said they could not accept Jesus' resurrection from the grave as a historical fact. 30% of Episcopalians could not accept it, nor could 35% of Presbyterian preachers, 33% of American Baptist preachers, nor 13% of the American Lutheran preachers or 7% of the Missouri Synod Lutheran ministers. When asked if they believed in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as a biological miracle, 60% of American Methodist preachers said emphatically no, as did 44% of the Episcopal priests, 49% of Presbyterian ministers, 44% of the Baptist clergymen, 5% of the Lutheran ministers in the Missouri Synod, along with 19% of the American Lutheran ministers. When asked if they believed in Satan and in the existence of demonic powers, 62% of Methodist preachers said they did not believe in Satan or evil, as did 37% Episcopalians, 47% of the Presbyterian clergy, 33% of the American Baptists, 14% of the American Lutherans and 9% of the Missouri Synod Lutherans. Perhaps the most alarming result of this poll was this. When asked if they believe that the Bible is in the inspired Word of God, that is, if they personally accepted a literal interpretation of the Bible, 82% of Methodist preachers rejected the inspiration of the Bible as did 89% of Episcopal priests, 81% of Presbyterian clergy, and 57% of the Lutheran clergy. And he goes on uh, to make some more points about that. What do you think things are like now? Do you think things have gotten better or worse? <laughs> I mean, this is very discouraging. These are ministers that are teaching their flocks, and I assume that their flocks take on the same mindset that these ministers do, and most of them don't even believe in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They don't even believe in the resurrection of Christ. Well, uh, that's a good question. Why, why are they preachers? Why are they ministers? Um, yeah, well, there is enough enough blame to go around for sure. Um, that's a good question about why are they pastors? You see, some people think that people aspire to be a pastor that this is their 
this is a choice that they make that is a career choice. But we know from the Scriptures that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one that gives the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. It's a spiritual gift. And how many pastors are behind pulpits today that don't have that gift? I don't know. Just because someone stands behind a pulpit and has REV in front of their name does not mean that they have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. Certainly, I would hate... It makes me tremble to think that if they are ministers, in other words, if they do have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, they are in heap big trouble because um, pastors get double discipline when they get off kilter. And I, I guess one reason I wanted to read those statistics to you is because we are studying the attacks that are on the Bible, that come upon the Bible. And we're looking at the best ways that we can counter that. Uh, We're talking about the apologetics with regards to defending the Word of God. And did you notice in those statistics, the highest one, 89% of, what was it, the uh, Methodists uh, don't believe in the inspiration of God's Word. Why did they even use it? I mean, if they think that this is just a, a, a book that man came up with, why are they uh, why even why even use it? I mean, they ought to be honest and say, let's all get together and we'll come up with an idea and try to decide how everything came to be. Pete, do you have a question or comment or something? Tom Anderson was one of my favorite uh, editors. He had four or five agriculture magazines across the South. Farm and, uh, farm and ranch something, I forgot. Anyhow, he, uh, this is a time when apostasy through the National Council of Churches was permeating all these churches. And they were getting, the National Council of Churches with their false doctrine was was it has had more influence on the pastors than their seminaries had in the past. And they diluted their message to a do-goodism, one-world type thing. And Tom Anderson, he spoke out against it. And one of the main things that I saw in Methodist literature in 65 and 67 was the theme, God is dead, even to the one point where in, in the educational system, the National Council of Churches had had an effect on a, uh, a song at Christmas. At that time, you could still sing Christmas carols. And uh, in, away in the manger in this book, and I saw it with my own eyes, up in the top corner was a cradle with a baby skeleton in it. <laughs> so that's how, how much and how long Satan's been at work to belittle and, and uh, try to bring down the Word of God. That's and I, In my lifetime, I was an adult at that time, so I've seen that. He certainly wasn't afraid to speak out. Let me read you one, one quick thing. I couldn't believe this. Uh, this had to do with young people. This was written October 1969. Now, some of you younger people don't remember the 60s, but the 60s were... <coughs> 
wild, to say the least. It's when you had the hippies, the Vietnam War, civil rights, everything was happening at the same time. It looked like uh, we were unraveling. And, you know, most of the time when people are called on to speak to the youth, they always are full of uh, uh, all types of uh, compliments and accommodations and or commendations, and <clears throat> this is what he said. Dear, spoiled, deluded, arrogant, brainwashed brats and know-it-alls, I'm sick of you. I am more sick of your uh, professors and your administrators and your clergymen, if any, your parents and others who have come very close to ruining an entire generation of young Americans. You are doubtless not as sick of this sick society as we are sick of you. What have you done to make this world a better place because you are here? Where have you contributed? For the most part, you have not been a contributor, but a freeloading, rebellious, bitcher, and nihilistic nuisance. He says, yes, we oldsters have made a mess of the world, and you're turning the mess into a cesspool. I know that this hard-nosed approach is poor salesmanship and a poor way to narrow the generation gap. I don't want to narrow the generation gap. I, I, <laughs> it's too narrow already. What's needed is a few fathers who are... Uh, we need a, uh, what, we, what is needed is a few fathers who are buddies and... Excuse me, let me read this again. What is needed is fewer fathers who are buddies and more fathers who are fathers and more parents who demand obedience and respect instead of permissiveness and acquiescence. Woo! <laughs> Whether you agree with him or not, this man isn't afraid. He says what speaks his mind. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, that's when the uh, Beatles came in, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and then the psychedelic music and the hard rock and um, drugs. But, I mean, it was um, you know, free love. Uh, you would see uh, even the fashion. Everything changed. You know, the, the, I think this, we had such a great society. Thank you. Uh, are the, the are the generation that of World War II? I have the highest regard for them. What they did and and the character that was expected of the average person at that time. They were great in that aspect, but they were lousy parents. Because that's what happened in the 60s. It wasn't the World War II generation that did that. It was the the children of that generation and. I don't know what, you know, it's, it was just, I don't go any further down this track. I wasn't going to go that far, but um, let's get back to our, to the Bible, to uh, defending the Bible. And we are looking at scientific information in the Bible and how it is always credible, it is always right on. In some cases, thousands of years before the information, the scientific facts came to view, um, the Bible was still right on. 
The universe is expanding. In Isaiah 40:22, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So we have this, this idea of stretching out the heavens. Scientists are beginning to understand that the universe is expanding or stretching out at least seven times in Scripture. We are clearly told that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. We looked at the earth hangs on nothing. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now we're into new, new territory. Again, we're looking at scientific information in the Bible. The stars are innumerable. Genesis 15:5. And he took him, Abram, outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. They are innumerable. Jeremiah 33:22, written over 2,500 years ago. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured. I just threw a couple of... Uh, I don't know if you can see this very good. I thought they were going to come out bigger than this. But I just got a few pictures off of the website, I mean off of the uh, Internet. You can't even see that one, can you? What happened to my pointer? I have... uh... Am I reduced to this? I have a, a, a laser pointer. I had one. You know, that might be what failed. This is, if you just look anywhere out in the sky with a telescope, you don't see a few dots. You see thousands of little points of light. If, this would be, if you were looking at up in the sky, about the size of a dime that you would be looking at, you would see this many stars in that. This is a star cluster. You can see some of it is a little bit uh, brighter than others, but you can see, I don't know how many dots are in here, but I'm sure that there's over a thousand in this little bitty spot here. This is a galaxy. This has billions upon billions of stars in a normal galaxy, and in the center it looks as if it's solid because there's so many stars there. But, of course, they're light years from each other, even in the center. Spiral-looking galaxy. So that brings a little bit more um, to the mind when we're talking about the stars being uh, innumerable. Yes? I assume that when he created it, it was... uh, Made to expand. I mean, you know, it's uh, all these all these stars. When we look at the stars, all these stars, they look like they're fixed. And we can see the stars in the ecliptic, which is also called the zodiac. It's called the Maseroth in um, Job. And when you look at um, Scorpio, which is coming up late this evening, looks like a scorpion. You see Leo the lion is, is up further this way tonight. And they look the same way now as they did in Christ's time. And thousands of years from now, they'll still look the same. And the, and the thing that's um, unusual about that is that all these stars are moving. They're moving at tremendous speeds. Probably uh, 
several hundred miles an hour or maybe even a second in some cases. They're moving in different directions at different speeds and yet they're so far away it would take a thousand years for a star from our perspective to move a quarter of an inch in the sky. So all this is moving and so and, and the whole thing according to what they say is, is also expanding. But to us everything is is in the same place. Now, when I say it's in the same place, when you go out and you look at a constellation or a star or the moon or any, any celestial object, when you look at it at a point in time, you go in and you come in the house, you come out an hour later, it's not going to be the same place. It's somewhere else. It's not moving through the sky. It's the rotation of the earth that makes it look like it's moving. It is moving, but it's so far away uh, we can't tell. No, it, it, it doesn't have to do with the, it's the rays of light. It's just with the, the rotation of the earth makes everything in the sky look like it's moving. And... And in, add to that, we're moving around the sun at the same time. That's the only reason we can see all the constellations is because of our circle around the sun. I didn't want to get too far in that. I just want to give you a little visual of and it, when you see this in color. And when you, one of these days, this, I'd have to do it in the winter. I'll bring my 12-inch uh, Dobsonian telescope, and we're far enough away from town that I could get, show you some... Uh, Places in the sky. The summer is, we're getting the best viewing time for the stars, and uh, because the, uh, we're in the Milky Way galaxy, and it looks like a plate, like two plates put together. And when you're viewing at a lot of, a lot of times you're viewing out, you're looking out away from our galaxy like this. But in the summer, we're looking through our own galaxy. And when you look at, at the tail of Scorpio right now, there's so many star clusters. In fact, you, you can go out, if you're out in the country, most of us are, and you look, it looks like a, like a thin, like a, 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 a little cloud up in the sky. You know what I'm talking about? It's, and they, it's called the Milky Way. And for a long time, they thought that was some kind of a gas, some type of, uh, until they got the telescope and started resolving that, those are stars. There's so many stars, it looks like a cloud to us with the naked eye. But when you put a telescope in it, you can see all, you can see all the little dots to see that it's not a cloud, that this is us looking through our own uh, galaxy, and it looks like a cloud. And so probably a month from now, uh, probably about... 10 or 11 o'clock, some of y'all will already be asleep. You'll see the top of Scorpio coming up. And that's when you're looking through our own galaxy. And that's when you start seeing the Milky Way. So when you, when you think of those terms, and this, our galaxy is about an average-sized galaxy. It has, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of billions. Would that be trillions? I don't know what it is. It's just an unbelievable amount of stars in our uh, galaxy. 
And there's other galaxies. There's billions of other galaxies. And these are just floating around out in the universe, out in space. And in between there, there there's all these stars. I want you to appreciate what these verses are saying when it says they're innumerable. It's not an exaggeration when they say that they're, if you could count all the grains of sand and all the beaches in the world would pale in significance to how many stars there are. And when you think about the size of the stars, I think I told you last time, the sun is a star. It's an average size star. It's, what, 90 million miles away from Earth? And you can take a million Earths and set it inside the sun. And that's... Now, think of that. Think how big space is and all of these stars, some of them. The, the star, one of the giants is um, Antares, is a, is a star. And it's so big, if the... Uh, center of Antares was in the in the center of our sun. The um, not the diameter, the radius of it would be from would go from our sun all the way out to Jupiter. That's half of the size of what that. It's a red giant. Anyway, I, I don't mean to give you a star lesson. I'm just saying when you understand these facts. You, you, you think about how big God is. That He created all this. That's why I put the pictures up so you'd have a little bit more of an appreciation for the stars. Have you all seen the... I think most of you have seen the presentation of the stars and so forth with Louis Gigliano. Have you all seen that? Some of you have. You haven't? Yeah, it was. Um, it's on the website, y'all. <laughs> uh, do we have the internet working yet? Okay. Well, as soon as we get hooked up, the first thing I'm going to do is bring our internet up on here and show you how to use it. Some of you can use it some, but I don't. I don't think any of you are using it to its full potential. But yes. Excuse me. Okay, let's press on. The entire creation made is made of invisible elements called atoms. Hebrews 1.13, written 2,000 years ago, says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that which the things that uh, are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's the way the Bible is telling us that the, bi the, the world, the universe, is made out of something that's so small we can't see it. And we know it is, that it's atoms. The Bible claims that all creation made of invisible material. Science then was ignorant of the subject. We now know that the entire creation is made up of elements called atoms. Second <clears throat> Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So we, the Bible tells us, God reveals to us, that the earth that we now know is temporary, and it is going to be uh, destroyed and remade. 
It's going to, when we even know the mode that it's going to be destroyed, and that's through fire. Now, the word elements, you notice, I have in red. reason it's interesting that elements in the Greek is stoikeion, S-T-O-I-K-E-I-O-N. It's a noun. It's a, a noun to plural neuter. And this is from the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, Art Danker. We know it as Bdang. It says, basic components of something, substances underlying the natural world, the basic elements from which everything in the world is made and of which it is composed. That's the word used for elements. And what would that be? Atoms. And I have to confess, I have no idea how you can split an atom, something you can't even see, and yet they, they have split it and the energy in it somehow is what produces the atomic bomb. Now, this is so far over my head, but if they can do that, if man can have a nuclear reactor or whatever they have, and they can get this kind of power from something that is so small we can't even see, think what God can do when it's time to renovate the earth. He's going to destroy this earth with fire and do another. And according to this, even the best basic elements that make up everything in this universe is going to be is going to pass away with a roar with intense heat. That word is always occurring in the plural, the materials of which the world and the universe are composed. This is from Lunida uh, lexicon. The last, I think this is the last one I have. I, I, I've narrowed this down. I could give you 20 more scientific illustrations, but I just picked a few to give you the gist. What about germs? We know about germs today. I think some of you may be germaphobes, at least from my perspective. If something falls on the floor, uh, if the floor looks clean to me, uh, I'm not going to let something go to waste. Uh, I'm... Whatever is the opposite of a germ, germaphobe is what I am. Anyway, that's why I would fit so well in the 1700s, 1600s. Some might say back in the caveman days. The Bible said that when uh, dealing with disease, hands should be washed under running water. Until a hundred years ago, doctors washed their hands in a basin of still water, and this resulted in the death of multitudes. They would wash their instruments and their hands if they washed them at all in a pitcher or a basin of water. And the next guy would come in and do the same thing. Leviticus 15:13, written 3,000 years ago. And when he that has an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water and shall be clean. Now, why water, running water? Because of the germs. They didn't even know that germs existed. I mean, they didn't have microscopes. They, didn't, they couldn't see them. They didn't know. And yet the Bible is saying, do these things under running water. And by the way, this was not so easy to do. They couldn't go inside and turn on the faucet. Okay, so much of... Uh, scientific information that is a strong apologetic with regards to defending the Word of God as being inerrant, God's revelation to us. Now we're going to look at archaeology a little bit.
I have to tell you, I have the hard thing in this archaeological proof is weeding it down. There is a massive amount of information about archaeology and how it relates to the Bible. You would be surprised. And I was reading through things that I, I, I wasn't going to use it because it, 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 it's, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really think it was the number one on your hit parade as far as scintillating information. But it, was, it, was, it just kind of grabbed me. And I looked... See, when I do research like archaeological things, I go through the Bible, I go through my um, Bible software like uh, Logos, Libronics, and I can search uh, over 2,000 books on issues in less than two seconds. And it might bring up 60 hits on what I'm looking for. And then I go and I read through all these articles from journals, through everything in my library. And then I go on the Internet and I look and see what it is. I get information from all over because I want a well-rounded uh, perspective with regard to these things. I don't want to miss anything. And then the hard part is taking all this massive amount of information and whittling it down to what I think is going to be the best for you, for you to understand. So I hope this doesn't put you to sleep, but it, it is for sure... Incredible information in defending the Bible. This, this, this came from um, a website. It's called Answering, uh, Answers in Genesis was the name of this w website. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It says, at the time... Uh, oh, wait. I forgot the first two verses. Psalm 85.11 says, Truth springs from the earth. And Luke 19.40 says, But Jesus answered, I tell you, if, the, if these, these men become silent, the stones will cry out. Anybody know what the context of that was? It was a triumphal entry when Jesus came, Christ came in. And someone said, Well, what, you know, the Pharisees, these people, what, what if nobody's going to say anything? He says, If they don't, it will be so important, it will be such a grand event that the stones will cry out. Well, the reason I have the stones crying out is because they cry out even today with the knowledge that they hold. Now is the article from the Answers in Genesis. At the time of his lecture, Professor Nelson Gluick stated, quote, I have excavated for 30 years with a Bible in one hand and a trial in the other. In matters of historical perspective, I have never found the Bible to be in error. I think that speaks volumes in itself. This one is from um, a journal, Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the journal from Dallas Theological Seminary, and the title was The Use and Abuse of Biblical Archaeology by Merrill F. Unger. And he says, Merrill says, it need scarcely be said that the proper procedure is to conduct archaeological research on a purely scientific basis in accordance with the science it is, and with the firm confidence that mature and sound deductions, objective and based upon a full array of evidence, handed in a thoroughly handled in a thoroughly scientific manner, will tally with scripture representations. Since in numberless instances the authenticity and reliability of scriptures have been fully attested by this manner, 
it is only reasonable to conclude that where disagreement and contradiction still persist, either there is some mistake in the method, dating, interpretation of facts, or the like, or that insufficient or incomplete evidence is at hand. What he's essentially saying, what he addressed in this article, is that you can imagine if archaeology is going to be evidence that what we find in the Scripture is true and valid, then there's going to be attacks on anything that the archaeological digs come up with. And sometimes, as we'll see in the past, they've come up with error. And they said, this contradicts the Bible. And then later on, we find that something else will come up and straighten it all out. Archaeology is a science that is ongoing. Sometimes later discoveries clarify confusion or controversies of discoveries found earlier. Here's, here's an example. The case, case of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, is an example in point of how further archaeological research may correct an earlier abuse of evidence. For a long time, the fact that the book of Daniel makes Belshazzar king at the time of the fall of Babylon, this is in Daniel 5, instead of Namunad, as the cuneiform records prove, was held as strong evidence against the historicity of the sacred account. The solution of this so-called discrepancy was apparent when evidence was found showing that during the last part of the reign of Nabonid, I guess that's how you say it, I'm giving it a shot, N-A-B-U-N-A-I-D, uh, this, this king resided in Arabia and left the conduct of the kingdom of Babylon to his eldest son, Belshazzar. So something that they found later on explained what appeared to be a discrepancy. Biblical archaeology is eminently useful in that it explains and supplements many biblical references. This is from that same article. Scriptural references to Solomon's commercial activities on the Red Sea has been illuminated and considerably supplemented by the discovery of a large copper smelting refinery at Tel El Kalalif, ancient Izan Geber. Shishak's invasion of Judah in the fifth year of Rehoboam has not only been confirmed by archaeology but added evidence and supplied that the Pharaoh penetrated and plundered the northern kingdom as well. We studied this, those of you who were with me in the first king study, that Solomon had so much gold, so much treasure, and it went by way of the Red Sea. And here you have a copper smelting refinery in that area. Everything that they find bears witness to this being true. Archaeology has, in a most astonishing manner, rediscovered whole nations and important peoples known heretofore only from obscure biblical references. In other words, the Bible references were there about nations and kingdoms and people that didn't exist, and the people would say, ha, ha, the Bible's so just a bunch of baloney because these places don't even exist. Well, the Hurrians, uh, the Bible calls them Horites. How would you like to be? <laughs> well, what's your nation? Well, we're the Horites. <laughs> Well, I'll call them the Hurrians. The Hurrians, who uh, now occupy a prominent place on the stage of ancient history, were until recent times known only from the sacred biblical passages, which were looked at askance and with 
grave critical suspicion until archaeology called attention to this ancient people and again vindicated the Bible. The same is true with the Hittites who remarkably, whose remarkable history has been revealed by the famous excavation of Winkler at Boghaz Kuhl in Asia Minor in 1906 and following. I don't know if you heard it, if you knew about that. You all remember Uriah the, the Hittite. And people used to, I mean, this is in recent times. The ha, ha, Bible talks about the Hittite. There's no such thing as the Hittites. Well, that all changed when they found not only evidence, but they found whole cities of Hittite peoples. A final citation of an extraordinary instance of specific confirmation will be sufficient to show the role of archaeology in playing in confirmation of the Scriptures. Second Kings concludes with a reference to Jehoiachin's release from prison in Babylon by evil Merodach, Nebuchadnezzar's successor. And his, this is what it says. And he did eat bread before him continually all the days of his life a daily rate. This is Second Kings 25, verses 27 through 30. And this is talking about Jehoiachin eating at the table of of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, evil Merodach. Now, in the same tablets that were that was mentioned earlier in the uh, article called Nuzu tablets. I'm sure y'all read those. The Nuzu tablets containing the names of persons to whom regular uh, subventions of grain and oil were granted at the Babylonian court appears none other than Yakin, king of the land of Judah, meaning King Jehoiachin of Judah. This important text was first published in 1940 by F. Widener, uh, Malangis, Syrians, offers a... Well, I'm not going to read all these words. Thus, despite the abuse of biblical archaeology, its use is far-reaching and exploding in radical, higher, critical theories. Exploding. You know what this is? The radical, higher, critical theories. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about all the claptrap that comes from people who don't believe in the Bible. It's higher... Criticism, see? It's the higher uh, critical theories coming from these people who don't believe the Bible. In other words, they think they're higher than the Bible. And what this is saying is that archaeology is essentially uh, blowing these things out of the water. Described below is a list of biblical figures that have been made known to us by secular, listen to this, secular ancient historical records. That means these, these were people who are named in the Bible that, no, that weren't mentioned anywhere else. And, of course, any times that happens, everybody says, oh, well, you can't believe that because it's not backed up by anything secular, see. Well, this is what archaeology has done. Uh, here, Roman emperors uh, Caesar Augustus and Tiberius and Claudius, Roman governors Pontius Pilate. You know, we, everybody's heard of Pontius Pilate, right? But the problem was the only place that it was ever mentioned was in the Bible. So there were a lot of skeptics that said, well, I don't know so much about that. Well, have you ever heard of the historian Josephus? 
Flavian Josephus. I have one of his works in my office back there. And he brings up the issue of uh, Pontius Pilate. I have it uh, in the notes below. And then we have Sergius Paulus, uh, Gallio, Felix, Festus. We have regional rulers such as Herod the Great, Archelaus, Herod, Antipas, Philip, high priest Annas, Joseph, Caiaphas, Ananias, prominent biblical figures, John the Baptist, and James the Just. You know who James the Just was? I'll give you a hint. James chapter 2. <laughs> Half-brother of Christ, right? Amazingly, much of the evidence uncovered supporting the Bible is from secular sources, some of which are hostile to Christianity. Josephus refers to Jesus twice in his writings. His second reference refers to James as the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. He has a longer passage of Jesus in his reports on Pontius Pilate, Pilate's administration. For centuries it was dismissed until the original wording was restored as noted here. Now, what this paragraph, this paragraph right here, is a secular, something that was not coming from the Bible. It was from a very notable, credible his, uh, Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. People are already saying, well, you know, everything's just in the Bible. It's never substantiated by anything else. Well, it is. That's not why we believe the Bible, but it is one more piece of what? Evidence. So this is what Flavian Josephus wrote. Eyewitness. Quote, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning who the prophets had reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. That is in from, from the antiquities of Josephus. Also, this. Critics had doubted the existence of Nazareth in Jesus' day until its name showed up in a first century synagogue inscription at Caesarea, Augustus' census edicts. This is linked with the nativity account. Remember Christ. I mean, uh, Joseph and Mary had to go uh, to Bethlehem for the census. And this is what this is talking about. A lot of people said, well, where's the evidence of that? Well, this is what he's giving it to you here. Um, the existence of Nazareth in Jesus' day, until, it came showed, uh, until the name showed up in the first century synagogue inscription at Caesarea. Augustus's census edicts, are borne out by the inscription of Ankara, Turkey. In his famous accomplishment, the Roman emperor proudly claims to have taken a census three times and mandated that husbands had to register their families for the Roman census. One last thing and we'll, we'll, we'll end. The Roman historian Tacitus and Suetonius both refer to Christ. 
There's plenty of extra-biblical references to Christ from historians. When you look at the archaeological finds, it continually substantiates the Word of God. And what I'm presenting to you is just more evidence for you to not only in your own soul recognize that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be, which is God's revelation to us, but to be so grounded in that that you would be able to tell others who are doubting about some of the evidence that you've seen here. Now, I don't expect you to remember all these, all these things. You might remember something about uh, Josephus uh, talking about Christ and him being the Messiah, and uh, it was claimed that he was resurrected. Uh, you might remember something about the Hittite people, the, the Uriah the Hittite, and nobody believed there was a Hittite. Now they found there's a whole empire that they had missed. You see, in the old days, in, in the ancient times, when a city was destroyed, they didn't go somewhere else and build a city. They would build another city right on top of that one. And when that generation fell, and literally fell, they would build another one on top of that. And so they're, they're continually digging. They call them tales. The reason they call them tales is to distinguish them from just a regular hill because a lot of times they look like a regular hill because after so many uh, centuries, after a city has fallen, uh, the dirt and dust and everything covers it up and it just kind of looks like a hill. But they are tales because you have one city built on top of another one. And I, it was so interesting. I, I'm so thankful that I had the time to do these re, this research and find out how these... Uh, archaeologists, they dig down and they'll get to a level and they think, well, that's it. And they say, no, I think maybe there's, some, there, maybe there's another one under this one. And they go under that and then they start finding even more things, ossuaries that have uh, inscriptions on them that unlock mysteries that heretofore were uh, not known. So archaeology is another big deal with regards to substantiating the Bible. However, there's no evidence and there's no proof that is that is going to magically change anyone else's mind that does not believe that the Bible is God's word. It's very disheartening, it's disturbing. Uh, what I read in this book 47 years ago, you had all these or 45 years ago, you had all these uh, ministers who were already so far off course. Listen, if this book is not God's word, I agree, and I'll, I'll just go along with what Dave Hunt said. I was listening to one of his uh, CDs uh, as I was traveling recently, and they were, uh, he called in on a, on a radio program. He was traveling, he called in and uh, started asking the, the uh, radio, the, the guys on the radio, was, it was a call-in show, and it was about uh, what we need to do is... Uh, Find out uh, who God is and what does, uh, no, no, it says, uh, what, what people think about God. That's what it was. And he, <laughs> he called in and he said, you know, I don't think it's important about what people think uh, uh, about God. I think it's important what God thinks about us. And is, has he made himself known to us? Can, he, can we know him? Has he spoken? And if he has, what has he said? I mean, this is what he was saying. And and then that got discussion kind of got into, well, well, we don't know if this Bible's accurate or not. He said, listen, if there's anything in this book that is in error, that it is wrong, 
and it's conclusively, unequivocally shown that it's an error, he said, let's throw it out. Let's get rid of it. Because if God doesn't know what he's doing, then we have no salvation. And like Paul said, we are the most, most people to be pitied. And that's what I'm, I stand on. If it's, if it's wrong, if you, these pastors that get up and don't believe in the virgin birth, they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe that the Bible is the revealed Word of God, I don't think the Bible needs to be thrown out. I think they need to be thrown out. And get somebody in there that says, Thus saith the Lord and backs it up with the Word. <laughs> well, I, I've been reading Tom Anderson and Dave Hunt and a lot of these people that speak their mind. You know, why don't, it's a good, it feels good. We don't have to be mealy-mouthed and retreat and back off and afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Just, let's just let it rip when it comes to thus saith the Lord. When you have a doctrine, you know what that doctrine is about. And people are trying to besmirch God and His Word and have everybody there. They're so used to Christians retreating. What they need is one that can stand firm for the faith and stand up and not retreat. And start asking a few questions themselves. <laughs> okay, I think on that note, we'll throw the anchor out here. And uh, I have, let's see, how many more? I've saved, oh, I've got pictures. You don't see them, do you? Okay, I'm looking at them. Pretty good pictures. Of course, you can see them next time. <laughs> Well, you know, we got to live by the clock, don't we? Okay, let's close. Father, thank You for Your Word. We're so thankful that we don't have to be worried that they're going to find something over in the Mideast that is going to discredit Your mighty Word. We're so thankful that it changes not. You change not. We can always depend on Your faithfulness and Your Word. What we need to do is meditate upon it more and more. Think about how we can use it. Think about each day as we begin our day to ask you to guide us and to help us remember the doctrines that we've learned and spend time just in the Word, in prayer, so that we can stand firm in these desperate times that we find ourselves and not be unglued and not be unstable and not be afraid, be confident, looking forward through a, a, an expectation of things to come, the wonderful things that you have promised to those who love you. So we pray that we will be inspired by all of this, by your word and your mighty grace. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.